Do you want to make more money? Listen to this episode. We brought a lifelong friend of mine, Mitchell Eisenberger, to the Kosher Money Studio to talk about his career, clever ways on how he negotiates. I think you'll be able to take practical lessons from this episode and apply it in your own career. Um, he, he was fascinating. We went through his trajectory, how he increased his salary from position to new job to new position to new job. He was very enlightening. And as I always say, I think you'll enjoy this week's episode. Oh, we do have sponsors. Yes, we have Approved Funding and Kolel Chabad. You're going to hear more about them in this week's episode. Without further ado, the great Mitchell Eisenberger. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Another episode of Kosher Money. This one's going to be a different episode. Excited to have a lifelong friend, Aaron, Aaron, Mitchell Eisenberger. Thanks for coming down to the Kosher Money Studio. Thanks so much for having me. We have pages, we spoke via email, of different things we can talk about as it relates to finance. I went through some of it. I usually do a whole lot more prep work, but given that I know you for so long, I'm like, we actually live this, right? When it comes to negotiations, we went through that. Where do you want to start? So, um, I can tell a little bit of a story, could weave a narrative. Go ahead. We can, we can sort of get into substance. I do want to thank you again for having me on. I think... In general, I'm a pretty passionate person about causes that are sort of near and dear to my heart. This is a little bit of a niche cause to try to bring out that like, oh, this is something you really care about. But for me, I don't like taboos on knowledge. I feel like the censoring, maybe this is like a zeitgeist moment for censorship. We talk about Twitter and Facebook and all these companies potentially censoring information they don't like. But money has always been something that has been censored. Um historically, what your father made, I don't know if you knew what your father made or what, no what your grandfather made, right? It was, it was something that was like unbecoming to speak about. And it set people back for many years because they just simply didn't know where to focus their goals. They didn't know what they should aim for. If you had ever known that your dad made 40% more than you ever thought, and then you started your career at a lower level and it was like, well, my father made it. But a funny thing about that is like later on in life, I feel like parents become more open with their children, but it might be when they're in their 60s and 70s, the kids are already in their 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. It's not that formative stage of your career anymore where you're making big time impact decisions on whether to go left or whether to go right with it. So shattering a taboo about money is is a pet project of mine. I like to say numbers and educate people because Knowledge is power. Cream will rise to the top. So you're not going to harm yourself by giving somebody else information. You can only help them. You're going to keep doing what you're doing anyway. Why should we hold people back? You know what I'm saying? So you have a bar mitzvah boy. He's 13. Right. When do you see yourself sitting down with your son, your oldest, and saying, hey, you're X years old. I think we should have a conversation about money. Here's where you should be striving for, not just in what college you should go to, but let's talk salary. Let's talk actual numbers. Do you see yourself doing that when he's 17, 21, 25, starting a family? I know this is a bit premature, but where's your head on that? That's a fantastic question. I love the question. I think it's a little bit of a yin and yang when you talk about kids with your wife, with marriage, right? I think my wife is maybe on this subject a little more 
you know, let's let the kids be kids and not think about these things. But I have made a point to be pretty open and, and say things around the kids vis-a-vis money that maybe other people wouldn't. And I think my son, who, like you said, is 13, he's got a tremendous mind for business. He's already put together a few ventures with sports cards or with, you know, junk food that he brings to school. And he talks to me all the time about the way he sees business, commerce at his level, which is, again, cards and things of that nature. And I think his mind is already there. We've had conversations. He doesn't fully appreciate the value of a dollar or $100 or $200 or how he can invest, but he doesn't need to yet. The foundation has been laid in terms of him thinking in that direction about what does it mean to make money? How do you save money? How does your money make money? You know, what do you spend your money on? So I, I've been having a lot of very frank conversations with them. I think it's I think it's terrific. I love it. A lot of the things you mentioned, and we spoke about this in previous episodes, are not discussed in schools, yeshivas. There's no real financial literacy program. Florida now just uh, came out with a law that you need to teach some sort of financial curriculum. Is this something you think, and we'll get back to, to your story, is this something you think that the schools should be more proactive about? So I went to law school. I went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. It's a very prominent school. It's got a long history. The one thing I think most lawyers would tell you about law school is they actually don't teach you anything about being a lawyer, right? And our kids' schools, you're asking this question. Like, I think starting from an early age, they need to be teaching Microsoft Excel, Mm. right? They need to be teaching things that people can use. Should they be teaching financial literacy? 100%. They should probably teach about the stock market. Something no adult coming out of, unless you go to like business school, you take some introductory courses in college, you don't understand anything about the stock market, bonds, stocks, debt, equity. You don't really understand this stuff. So should they be teaching trigonometry for the regents in New York State? Uh, how is that super helpful? They should replace that with a stock market class. I, 100% I agree with you. We should be learning things at every stage that are more useful. I couldn't agree more. So let's go through your story. You mentioned law school. Where, where do we begin? Um, what was your first introduction to the to the working world? Um, schooling. I know we want to get into negotiations. Let's let's walk through the narrative. Maybe let's start with your early childhood. Tell us about that. So I was raised in a very traditional home with regards to education. A lot of Holocaust survivors, people that you know felt that they wanted safety. That, that's a that's a buzzword. They wanted safety for their children. They would have them go to graduate school. They would first have them go to college, and there was some friction between people that wanted to stay in the, you know, Gemara or the yeshiva studies, the, the orthodox studies, and not go to college, right? But for a whole generation of people, safety was going to college and getting an education. So my family had, had those strong beliefs, and I'm very happy that they did. And, you know, I learned post-high school, but then came back pretty quickly within two years and started Brooklyn College. Um, I majored in psychology, had a fascination with psychology, but even at that age, I was thinking financially, and I would ask questions about what psychology made and how much money was in it. And I wasn't thrilled with the you know the answers. What it were the was, numbers? They would say, like, if you're really good, you can make $125,000 or $150,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, my, my, my dad had had success beyond that, so I... I wasn't looking to be capped at $150,000 a year, and I, mm-hmm. did, I knew I didn't want to do that. I was always, my, my older brother is just a year older than me. He's excellent financially, always was, so he's a numbers guy. He was like destined for business school and finance. Early on, he had worked at a hedge fund. Today, he works at a hedge fund. So I, myself, was more written and spoken word. 
So that skill set loosely translates with law school. Lawyers write, lawyers speak. I was always the family speaker. I would speak at family functions. And it was always like, you argue a lot. <laughs> and sometimes you win the arguments. You're probably best suited for law school. So that it didn't matter what I majored in undergrad, but mm -hmm. I did take a liking to psychology. I became a member of the National Psychology Honor Society. <laughs> they still send me spam emails. Mm -hmm. And I, I had a real hankering to learn more about dealing with people and interpersonal relationships. It's something my entire career has been based on networking. My entire career, which I think is completely heaven sent. Who you meet, you know, obviously there's a lot you can do to build relationships and to not just have them superficially, but follow up on those relationships and be there for people. That's more important than any degree I've ever gotten is just putting effort into your relationships. But skipping over that, so I, I went to psychology, um, graduated from Brooklyn College, took the LSAT because that's what was sort of put out in front of me. And I always kind of wanted to get out of New York. I was born in New York. I had a, I lived in New York besides for a short stint out of the country mm -hmm. after post high school. I, I was always in New York and I said, I want to see, you know, the rest of the country. I've always traveled a lot and been enamored with other cultures within the United States. So I ended up in Washington, D.C., 10 blocks in the White House. I had just gotten married. Most Orthodox Jews don't end up in Washington, <laughs> D.C. I had a kid. I worked in the government. I okay. wanted to be a politician. I worked for Senator Joseph I. Lieberman from sure. the state of Connecticut. Um, and that's a great story, too, for a different time. And I learned pretty quickly I didn't want to be in politics. A funny thing happened right after I started law school, which is that the economy completely crashed. Uh, there was that day it went down 777 points. Uh, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, all these companies, you know, the banks needed to be bailed out. It went from when you were in a top 20 law school and you did pretty well, you would just get a big firm law job, mm. which was the safety that people preached for their children. Because being in a law firm was very defined. You started out at a certain salary. All the top 250 law firms in New York or big cities start at the same exact salary. It's called lockstep. When one goes up, they all go up. Um, and then a second year associate made this and a third year and you work really hard and you work 18, 19 hours a day. And my dad had taken this path before me. He had done that. And then you make partner and you have stability. You're a partner at a law firm. You make a million dollars a year. You never stop working, by the way. You still work 19 hours a day, but now you're a partner and you have financial security. So I was quote unquote destined for that path. But a funny thing happened. Um, everything that happens in our lives is not within our control, it happens from God. And the more you recognize that, the better off you'll be. The economy crashed. These law firms slashed their summer associate programs. They were not what they once were. And I interviewed with several hundred of them, including callbacks in different markets, Miami, Chicago, Los Angeles, Baltimore. I traveled all around Washington, D.C. Um, and then... You were ready to move to those yes. locations if the opportunity arose? Yes. I was agnostic of market. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't really care where I would end up. I just wanted to start something somewhere and see where it took me. <clears throat> but as fate would have it, it really was a tough time. So I ended up clerking for a law firm that was a small boutique law firm in New York City, but not one of these big ones. Mm -hmm. And when law school was said and done, I took the bar in two states. I passed in New York and New Jersey. I did not have a full-time employment offer you know, set in stone, which if you summer your second year after school, your third year after school was when you're graduating, you take the bar, you go back to the firm you summered at. My firm was not one of those firms. They, they had me on, they paid me, but... They're a firm of eight lawyers, so they didn't always have spots to hire people. It wasn't, wasn't that kind of firm. So 
it really led me down, it forced me down a path to get creative, which was a blessing for me because I never wanted to work at a law firm. It was just the path that was defined for me. It wasn't something I was excited about. It wasn't passionate about it. Didn't like the curriculum in law school enough to say, I want to dedicate the rest of my life to this. So I took the bar and I passed. And, and now here I am, barred in two states, registered as an attorney in New York, New Jersey. And the world is my oyster. I mean, if you want to be negative about it, you could be like, well, the world's falling off a cliff and I don't know what I'm going to do. But if you want to put a positive spin on you, say like, I'm, I'm open for opportunities. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? Now, I'm extremely fortunate that I did not graduate with debt. So a person, again, is forced into decisions by their situation. So if you have $150,000 of debt and then even more so from undergrad and you come out of law school, and that's big trouble. I mean, you're, you're going to feel crushing pressure. You're going to have a wife. I had a wife and a couple of kids. You can't just have this la di da attitude. You need to figure out. I didn't have to do that because I was very fortunate. There's two ways you could do that. Right. Somebody can fund your schooling. Which is you, what happened in your case? Yes, or okay. you can get a scholarship. Um, and in, in my case, in a lot of cases, you can pay for a good school, but if you have good enough grades and, and credentials to get into a good school, you could have a lesser school offer you a full, at least in my time, it was like that, a full scholarship. Mm-hmm. I chose to go to the good school because I had backing that said, go to the good school. We, we want you to go to a good school. Mm-hmm. And Incredible generosity, nothing I did to deserve that, all from God, you know, luck, my parents. Which for many is very difficult. They, they don't yes. have the ability to look at their options, invest in those options, go to school. Time is of the essence, especially when you have a wife and two kids and the bills start mounting. Absolutely. Um, so there's certainly a luxury that you had to... Uh, so again, maybe that's a different conversation for a different podcast about should you maybe just go to a lesser school and get a law degree mm-hmm. and not pay for it? If you are faced with that choice, so that, you know it's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. But in my case, I didn't have to choose, and I went to better school and I graduated. So now the world is my oyster. So this is where I started my career in networking. I mean, I had started way before that, but thinking about my options to make money, right? It was a very pragmatic thing, but also what I, year is this? Two thousand eleven. Okay. Um, I think that a lot of us are raised with like a romantic idea of do what you love. But what happens when, and you've probably covered this on other episodes, what happens when do what your love conflicts with making a living? So let's say I absolutely love to play basketball, which I do. Mm-hmm. And I have a podcast about basketball. Yes, you do. The volume shooters. So let's say I love to play basketball, but I'm like a five foot eight guy, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to really seriously play basketball. But I mean, technically, I could maybe go to like some foreign country and maybe get a job playing basketball if I were good enough. It would pay me $20,000 a year to live in a foreign country. So then do what you love is like directly conflicting with making a living. So at least on my, the way I was raised, you've got to be pragmatic. You have responsibilities. You've got to feed your family. So I always found that conversation funny also. I don't know if you've delved into that in the past. Well, do what you love doesn't necessarily mean loving basketball, playing basketball, doing what you love. If it's basketball, you can negotiate the contracts for players, right? We spoke about uh, before this interview negotiations and how that's something you're, you're passionate about. So you can network with players, become, you know, find a D3, D4, whatever it is, right. player, and start slow and work your way into it without actually having to play basketball on a court. So I did that. And 
I network ferociously. I'm I'm a pretty good networker, which I'm. What does that mean? You pick up the phone. So hold on, I I feel comfortable saying that because I don't, I don't feel like that's a gloating, bragging thing. Trying like being a good networker just means building relationships. It just means you know meeting people, being dogged in your pursuit of meeting those people, mm-hmm. and then when you meet those people trying to connect with them, which is like the most human of, of elements. It's not something you could be quote unquote good or bad at. Everyone mm-hmm. can make relationships. Um, so what does it mean? I found, found I pursued email addresses and cell phone numbers of, com- of, of team presidents, the president of the Nets, mm-hmm. the president of the 76ers. While I was in school, I did this. I went to a school, Michael Jordan's agent, David Falk, went to my law school and he came back and he lectured. He would talk about what it was to be Michael Jordan. I wanted to be an agent. But again, what happens when what you love conflicts with making a living? Mm -hmm. You'll be told to be an agent. You could get a JD MBA from Harvard University and start in the mailroom at $20,000 and there's a 2% chance that you'll make it all the way to the top. Is that pragmatic? You could throw it all the way to to chase your dreams. People you know, go to Hollywood because they want to be a star. But what are your chances of making it? And when you have a wife and two kids and you have a mortgage, can you do that? I I don't know. And in my case, trying to be an agent, it was exactly that scenario. So I did network. I did reach these presidents of companies and teams. I did meet with them and spoke to them. And not once, not twice, every week. They were receptive to your emails? I'm sure some ignored you, right? For a year. The president of the Nets ignored me for one year. And after a year of sending one email a month, he responded. Why didn't you stop after six emails? Like, take a hint, brother. That's because that's my own personal. (laughs) That's my drive. And, you know, at that time, it's what I wanted to do with it. And Where were you you when he sent you an email after 12 months? You remember that email that came in? So it actually goes before that. I've been emailing him for months with no response. And then I would go to the games. And when you go to games, everyone knows who the players are. Okay, But they don't know who the team president is. I did. Mm -hmm. So I would go to him. I know where his seats are. So nerdy. And I would say to him, what's up, Brett? How you doing? And he'd be like, who are you? I'd be like, oh, I send you an email every week, you know, (laughs) or every month or whatever it was. My wife and I were actually at a game, and I bumped into him in the hallway of the arena, and um, he said, what's that on your wife's head? My wife had been wearing a New Jersey Nets hat, so I'm a fan of the Nets. And now they're in Brooklyn, and I said, come on, you you were the president. You you know what that was like in New Jersey. And he literally put, it was a whole scene, because people were like, there were thousands of people around. They saw him, and he went over to the nearest merchandise stand, and he said, give me a cap for the young lady. She can't wear this anymore. Put it on my tab. And everyone was laughing, and it was all thing, but... Through these stories, I became friends with him. Wow. Um, and we kept in touch. And now he's moved on to a different venture. But, you know, I, it's funny because nothing ever came of it in terms of me working there. But I built a relationship with him. And there are many others in sports that I have similar to that, mm-hmm. that I've maintained over the years. The president of the 76ers as well. So that's what I mean when I say I networked. I knew how to. Um but just because you network, it doesn't mean it's going to get you exactly where you want to go at that exact time. Mm-hmm. It may down the road, but for then and there, these weren't doors that were going to be open to me short term. Definitely not short term. So I had to come up with alternative plans. So at this time, I was networking with a lot of different industries and a lot of different people. And one of the people I met was a guy who was primarily a real estate guy that was buying retail, retail department store chains. Uh, Lord and Taylor, Saks Fifth Avenue. There's 
a department store chain in Canada called Hudson's Bay Company. And so I met with him just as sort of an informational meeting. He set me up with HR. Long story short, I received an offer um, for $80,000 to do some, you know, nebulous project for them. It was new store openings. There was a task force. They hadn't opened new stores in a long time and said, you can sit in between all these areas of the company, HR, finance, um, real estate, merchandising, all these different parts, and you could learn a lot about this business. And that excited me. I, I, I always said I wanted to work for Pepsi or for Coke or for Ford because in, in, in the way I was raised, you were going to work for a law firm, you were going to be a doctor, mm -hmm. you are going to work for some financial firm on Wall Street. I was like, who works for Target and CVS and Walmart in the corporate office, not like you know at a store location? And so I got my wish. I ended up working for Lauren Taylor under Hudson's Bay Company. That was my job out of school. Is this still 2011? Yes. So you have two kids. You're working for this company, which is not necessarily a Coke, but it's a, it's a real brand. It's a real company, real revenues. At $80,000 a year, were you paying your bills? Or this, it wasn't about the money at this point. It was about where this job can take you. So my wife, you know, made a small secondary income and we rented an apartment that was affordable when we didn't have really a car at the time. I had a car, but I had bought it many years earlier. Mm -hmm. My expenses were not great. Um, and so, you know, we also got some help from my in-laws. We, we didn't rent an apartment right away. So we, we were living rent-free. There are ways to keep your expenses down. I had moved from Washington, D.C. back to New York to be closer to family, you know, to network, etc. And so... Yeah, it was fine to make $80,000 and to have my wife make a little bit of money um, as a starting salary was totally okay. I mean, I had some offers from law firms to make 100 or 110, but I, I had realized at that point that I didn't think there was much of a future there for me, and I wanted to do something creative and get started and see what I can make out of it. So I took it, and I thought that was a very fair starting salary. I don't know, like, if somebody would come out of college and get paid $80,000 a year, they would probably feel that was right. pretty good. Sure. So. Law school, the standards are different. But like I said, I, I was fortunate I didn't have debt. So it was good for me. It worked out. It was okay. Did they offer you 80000 and you accepted? Or they offered you seven and you said, no, I want it to be eighty. The range of the position, I think, was sixty to eighty. Uh huh. Oh, so you and, topped that. And I came in and they said, well, maybe whatever. And I said, listen, I, I wouldn't take this job unless it was eighty. And they said, really, that range is for experience. You have no experience. Mm -hmm. And I said, and this comes into probably the meat of our conversation, this is not like a feelings-based game. This is, you have goals, they have goals. There's no, no personal animosity here. It's just, I want to make $80,000 and I wouldn't take less than that. So if you're not going to offer me this position at $80,000, then I'm not going to take it. Um, and it wasn't acrimonious. It wasn't angry. It was just like, well, that's what I want to make. And I was talking to some other people at the time and they came back and they said, no, we'll take a chance on you. It's okay. We really wanted someone more experienced, but we think you have a law degree and that could play in positively. So we'll give you the 80. We'll give you the top end of this. Were you talking to friends, family? Were they help? Were they coaching you through this? Because I know you and I have a history here where when I was transitioning out of CNBC and I was looking at different offers, we would jump on the phone and I feel like you had this negotiating style you had tactics you knew what to say and when to say it i was some days i was on the phone with you uh five six times um is this something that you did well because these are your skills and 
your innate talents or this was someone coaching you and helping you through the process? I think we're, it's nature versus nurture. I think we're all a product of our upbringing. So my father's a very strong influence on my life and my friends have been and conversations with you, obviously. Any, anything that you do is furthering because when, when you mentor somebody or coach somebody, you're actually furthering your own knowledge base. You're learning about that person's experiences and how, let's say, you're dealing with CNBC. So now I'm learning how CNBC is treating you. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting all kinds of perspectives to take forward with me and inculcate into my thinking going forward. So I, I think it's all all there in terms of me. I think I have have a certain innate, natural tendency to negotiate things. And I think that law school helped hone it. I took a lot of courses in negotiations. and I And I think just my experiences with networking and talking to people have made me into this person that enjoys this. Remember, find what you love. Mm-hmm. I like to negotiate. Mm-hmm. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I do it out of necessity and sometimes I forget that I like to do it. But eventually I, I remember that I do like to do it. So I was negotiating. That was my first negotiation with them. And I, I succeeded. I got the top end of what they were offering, even though it wasn't for me. It was for somebody with five years of experience, and mm-hmm. I had none. But I said, the three years of law school could be counted towards <laughs> the five years of experience. You know, we went back and forth, but it was a question of they needed to fill the role, and they thought I could do it, and they acquiesced. So, okay, the first year you're making 80000 That includes, there's benefits, I'm, I'm assuming, also, right? Yes, health insurance. health insurance. 401k, yeah. So what happens? At the end of a year, you get an automatic raise. Walk us through that. So. Excellent question. That's when I learned why people didn't work for Pepsi and Coke Hmm. and Ford. There's tremendous bureaucratic red tape, right? Things that doesn't happen in small business. We have a 17-page self-evaluation to fill out at the end of the year. Asks us a million questions about what we did this year, but not specific questions, which I would recommend maybe in in the future of this podcast. You know, going forward, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I would do this, but... They ask you questions like, did you play nicely with your coworkers? You know, did you, did you come on time? Kind of pretty juvenile, mm-hmm. but what were your biggest wins? What were your biggest losses? You know, what do you think you could improve upon? Things like that, right? And then at the end, I learned I have a boss. He, I, they're going to take my self-evaluation. They're going to put their own evaluation, kind of like your kids in school mm-hmm. with report cards. And they're going to give you a number. And based on that number you're going to get a range of a raise. Now, remember, I made Mm $80,000. You're going to make 1%, 2 or 3% that year. That's your raise for the next year. Just to put numbers on it, that means you're going to make $800, me, $1,600 or $2,400 pre-tax. So I'm going to make $800 if I get 1%. And so I'm not going to get a raise. Right. Right? Today with inflation, we know that Making 8% may not be enough, but making 1% is, is, is an actual joke, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're really just going to stay stagnant. And that'll happen for years. Right. Years. You right. could spend 10 years. I knew a man who I'm still in touch with today who had been at that company for 53 years. He started as like a stock boy mm-hmm. when he was 16 in a store. And then all the way into his 70s, he was working there in a high role. And he was making $130,000 a year. Val- Which is not uncommon. Right. The value in those jobs, though, is the, is the benefits, right? You ask him for his pension or his 401k, whatever it is. Right. And it's, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. But, but not uh, in his case. It was not. It was not. No. But us as Orthodox Jews, we don't have the time for no, that. Can't. We have tuitions. We can't. have kosher groceries. Right. We don't have the time. Um, there's I so- will say this. He yeah. was happy 
but I wouldn't be happy being him. And he's salt of the earth. He's such a good guy, and he loved the company, and he cared about the company, and went through nine mergers and acquisitions, and they, you know, constantly, I guess, disrespected him by putting people above him because it's not they anymore. It's a constant changing carousel above him. Mm-hmm. It's new owners, new bosses, new HR. And then the way you get a raise is your title changes. Then you get a 10% raise. Mm. So I started out as a manager. Then there could be a director, then a divisional vice president, then a vice president, then a senior vice president. Executive. The titles never stop. So you could spend 10 years in between promotions. You're not going to get a 10% bump until 10 years from now. At 80, you're not going to get up to 90 for another 10 years. And like you said, we don't have that kind of time. Right. That's why I left CNBC. Great working environment, um, networking, benefits my first salary full-time i think it was seventy thousand, and i was elated three years later um or maybe a year after that i got a three-year contract and it was eighty thousand. but then at the end of the three years i think you know with the incremental percentage point raises i was at maybe 85 90 and they said okay if you lock in for another three years. I remember it well. We yeah, were discussing yeah, this. Yeah. If you lock in for another three years, we'll give you $100,000. But, and if you sign now, we'll give you a $5,000 bonus. And I was like debating. And, you know, the way you're saying yeah. it is the way I feel it is almost devious. Right? It's like, we could get this guy. Right. He's talented. It's, He's going to be locked in. But but uh, you know what? I'm which And, and I'm not discounting it. It's, it. There's real money here. Sure. You know, especially like we said with the benefits. But going up against non-Orthodox Jews who don't have the budgets that I have, there's a whole pool of people for them to pick from. So I was talking to another, an, a marketing agency at the time, and I remember we kept going back. They, they initially wanted to me, offer me 80, 90. I said, listen, I'm being offered 100 here. And they said, fine, we can give you 110 or something like that. After going back and forth a bunch... I think the highest the marketing agency was going to offer me was 125. And then another player came into the market and I and I got uh, considerably more than that, but I find that the best way to make more money is not within the company. It's telling another company what you're making here and that they have to substantially come in higher than that. So I like, hate that. I I find that sad. To me, when you are a known commodity to somebody, they should want to take care of you. But they don't know the market take, value. They don't know they the market. They do mar- know because yeah. they have other people uh-huh. that are above you that uh-huh. are making more than you. And they always know what those people bring to the table versus what you bring to the table. But they're not going to be proactive in giving up their money. They're going to make you come to them. Mm-hmm. And and you've already lost the game with regards to human element of it when you make somebody go out to find another relationship. In Mm -hmm. other words, if I came to you and proactively gave you what you wanted and kept you happy and stopped you from speaking to other people, Mm -hmm. then I will have kept you happy and not made you wander. Your thoughts go somewhere else. Once I need to go out and start speaking to other people, I'm going to find people I might like better. I'm going to find situations I might like better. To me, that's... That's corporate America at its finest. It's it's a faceless, nameless entity. It's not run by people. It's run by a corporation. Small business runs by like the owner of the company right. speaking to you. It's his money. He's making it. He's paying it. Corporations don't run like that. They got a board. They have a CEO. They have stock if they're public. They have shareholders. 
it, they, there's no feeling in it. There's no human. In, so they don't want to keep you happy. They don't care if they keep you happy. You know, your superior could love you as much as he possibly can. He's not empowered to keep you because he himself has a budget which he can't exceed for his team. Mm-hmm. And you're a puzzle piece on that team. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's, his hands are tied behind his back. He can't pay you more. He can if he wants to. So it's one, two, or three percent. And now a word from a sponsor. Approved funding. I've mentioned them in the past and I'll mention them again. A 35-year-old mortgage banker that prides itself on providing hands-on real estate and financial advice. Look them up, approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. They help you make common sense decisions when you're looking to buy a home. They handle all aspects of the loan process in-house. Great people. Shmuel Shiowitz. He's been at this for 25 years. He's the president. Great guy. He leads the company with the principle that every client should be educated on the best financial strategies, whether short-term, long-term. If you're looking to buy a home, look them up. Tell them the f- your, their friends at Kosher Money sent you, and they'll waive all the bank fees. Give them a call, 800-475-0123, or visit approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. And now back to Mitchell Eisenberger. You brought up an excellent point that I think is worth highlighting. When you talk about networking and building relationships, you have a small business owner. You, you're continuously every day building the relationship with him. When you have in a corporation a revolving door of executives and different people you're reporting to, as much as you network to one person, you can come in the next Monday and that guy's gone. Any goodwill you built in order to potentially increase your salary by more than 3% is gone when Jill was replaced with Will. Right? 100%. So this small business opportunities are, are, are so much greater. But I want to get back to your story. So you're making 80000 um, one, two, three percent Did you get, knowing you, 10%? You know, what, what happened? I got 3%. Okay. So I got 2400 bucks. I was making eighty two four at the end of my first year. My second year, the company had a down year, I guess. So 3% wasn't available. So I got like 2%. So two percent of eighty two four. I got another two thousand dollars somewhere in that neighborhood. And I was making about eighty five thousand. I'd been there about three years. I had moved to another part of the company where I met, I guess, who would be my first not mentor, but somebody I learned a lot from as a boss. He was a McKinsey consultant that had come on board. Very smart, sharp young guy. He bought Bitcoin in two thousand ten. That was the first time I ever heard Bitcoin. So suffice it to say, he made quite a, a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, he said something then that I carry with me till today. I put it on a coffee mug at one point. He said, Mitchell, when you're talking about negotiating, the goal is to kill tension with legitimacy. Kill tension with legitimacy. It really resonated with me. And I, I, I like thought about it and I internalized it. And What does that mean? He's 100% right. In any negotiation, there's an inherent amount of tension. You want something. They want something, you want more, they want to get what's fair, get what's less, whatever whatever the case may be. And the tension is where there's this wild west of rules. Who's supposed to win this argument? There's no real right or wrong. I have my opinion, you have your opinion. We're going to meet somewhere in the middle, but there's a tension, right? Which is we're fighting against each other. Your goal in a negotiation is to eliminate the tension with legitimacy. Legitimacy means you come with facts. Facts 
today today we have fake news and we have facts aren't facts and we need to verify facts but mm-hmm. assume for a minute hypothetically you could bring a set of facts which are I worked on this project and it was a, a gain in in my company in my group it was the profit improvement committee we had write-ups when we did a project we we documented and we tracked the benefit to the company I increased revenue in this area by $150,000. I, I negotiated a new contract for armored car services and I saved the company $300,000. Mm-hmm. I've now created $450,000 in value. I saved 300 and I increased revenue by 150. Mm-hmm. At the end of the year, and the more detailed you can be, the better, I would take this with me forward into the small business arena and create obsessive lists of everything that I did and try to come at the end of each year with a thick book, which I bound and put color graphics in to show what I did and what value I brought. And it was 80 pages long at one point when I went one year. And what you can do then is you can come with legitimacy and you can say, I am worth some percentage of the $8 million that I brought to the table. I'm not worth $8 million. I'm not worth 10% of $8 million. But what is it? Is it 1%? Is it 2%? So that's $80,000, right? How much value am I bringing? You could do this on a very low level of sophistication or you could do this on a high level, but everybody can put together, you and I did this exercise. Mm -hmm. Everybody can put together a list of, even if it's speculative, not number-based, what value did I bring here? Then we can have a conversation about what I think that's worth and what you think that's worth But instead of having a conversation about, I'm worth this. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Here's what I did. I'm not telling you I'm worth this or this. I'm telling you I did this for this company this year. What do you think it's worth? But let's have a conversation without tension. Because at the end of the conversation, the same way I took that $80,000 offer, but I was ready to take a different one, I'm either going to get what I want or you're going to get what you want, or it's not going to be what either of us want and maybe we can part ways. But there shouldn't be tension to that. We got to remove the feelings from it. And we got to say the best relationships I've seen in business are when somebody comes to a boss or a business owner and says, I got an offer for 30% more than I make. And the business owner who really does like that employee, and I have a close friend, business partner that I had this conversation with Mm -hmm. recently, and he did this. Somebody came to him and said, I was offered 30% more by a competitor and he said, I am so happy for you. It's not in the cards here. I don't, I have somebody in that role, whatever reason, but you should take that offer, right? He wasn't bluffing, right? No, no, he was legitimately happy for the guy. Now, you as the guy coming to your boss, if you want to stay, you may feel bad about that. But over time, you'll realize he did you a favor. The worst relationship that way is when somebody's dangling things in front of you, just to keep you where you are at the price he's paying you. So he says, if we do X, Y, and Z, you're going to make a lot of money. But then two years down the road, you find yourself making the same amount of money. But he's still saying, if this, this, and this happens, he's baiting you potentially to stay in a role and he's being disingenuous. Mm. But why is he doing that? He's doing that because he likes you. Not likes you. He values your productivity, but he's trying to get himself a good deal. Mm -hmm. So... Kill tension with legitimacy. I come with legitimacy. You come with legitimacy. No tension. We have a discussion. I bring you what I think I'm worth you. And if at the end of the day, we can't come to an agreement, we should leave on good terms. So 
I love the idea of keeping track, and I remember we, we, we spoke about that and we were doing that. How often are you updating that? Is it a Google Doc? What are you, what are you using? What's your uh, go-to? I'm using either a Word document or a spreadsheet. Okay. And you're updating that daily, weekly? Do you have a set reminder? Because I think this can legitimately provide value to people if they were to do it religiously. That's going to depend on your personality. Okay. For me, I love to keep lists. I love to check things every day, know where they are, and document them. I like documentation. I like organization. So I'm, anytime I think something rises to the level of an accomplishment, I'm putting it on the spreadsheet. Mm. And then I'm going to take time later on to flesh it out. Mm-hmm. So at, the, at first, I'm just going to put down a note that I'll remember. I did this. Very simply, a lot of times when you jot that note down, you don't know what it's going to turn into. I came up with a real estate venture for, for my boss and I pursued it and I and I sought it out and I called the broker and I found it and I sourced it and I'm talking. You don't know what it's going to turn into. It may not work out, but you put down real estate venture on Broadway, mm-hmm. right? Then if it works out, you flesh it out with details. Um, but anytime something you think is like a good thing, also it, it helps you stay excited, you review that list and you know you might leave a note on your iPhone. You know what you have on the horizon that might like bear fruit. You're planting seeds. Keeps you engaged. It keeps you excited. So I'm doing it obsessively, mm-hmm. but it would be on each person to think, is this important? Like, do I think this might be something? So write it down. So cool. You talked about the wild west of salaries. And, and I want to get into that a little bit because especially in the firm world, Right, people come in and sit down by meetings, and they say, "Okay, I need to make one hundred twenty thousand dollars just to live." Like, you're offering seventy five. That's great. That's that's maybe what the job needs. But I need this much money. And then you have people within within the working world, uh, owners of companies, and they're offering I don't know seventy thousand. You come to another company, same job, it's one hundred ten thousand. Right, like the money's just fluid. Whereas in the corporate world, they have a little bit of a baseline number, which seems a little bit more tangible and real, that they're not just pulling it out of a hat, right? They do. And it's it's both the blessing and the curse of corporate America. Mm-hmm. The blessing is there's a lot of stability and there's a lot of um, transparency almost because you know if you're a second year associate at a law firm, you're making what the guy next to you is making right. within reason. I call it the snowflake effect. And if you want to call it the firm world, the small business world, the entrepreneurial world, no two companies have the same exact role. Even if they call it the same thing, the person in that role is wearing more hats. It's not as defined. You can develop into different roles and do different things, but it's going to cause a lot of confusion as to how much money you should be making. Because, well, I do A because my title is A, but I also do B. So I get paid to do A, but B I'm not getting paid for. Shouldn't I make a little more? In fact, the company next door that does the same thing we do, they have two separate people doing A and B. Mm -hmm. They're paying those two positions $200,000. You're only getting away with $100,000 because I'm doing both for you. Mm -hmm. How do you kill tension with legitimacy here? It's a a problem Mm -hmm. because you go to your boss and you say, the guy next door is paying whatever. And he says, well, I didn't structure my company like the guy next door. He's being inefficient, right? So how do you play that through? Sounds legitimate, by the way. Yeah. You need, I, I feel, to make yourself as valuable as possible and to learn as many skills as possible, not for the person you're working for, for yourself. 
because you may find long term that you were doing A and B. A has a, you've opened more possibilities for yourself because now you go out and you look for a new job and there's six jobs available. Four of them are A's and two of them are B's and they're all offering different salaries, but you can market yourself as both an A and a B depending on what's beneficial for you. So gain more skills. I'll give you more. You could do accounts payable, accounts receivable. You could do purchasing. You could do uh, human resources, right? And let's say you become proficient in accounts payable and accounts receivable. And there's two jobs out there. There's a manager of accounts payable and a manager of accounts receivable. One of them is offering 80 and one of them is offering 120. You're now eligible for both. Mm -hmm. You can apply for both. And we both know that once you get in there, you're going to do other things. Keep picking up new parts new business things, new ways to market yourself and brand yourself and make yourself eligible for new jobs. Um, and then you'll always have that conversation with legitimacy. You'll say, look, I do accounts payable, accounts receivable, human resources. We don't have to put a definition on what I do and what my position's worth because I'm not that position or that position. I'm all those positions. There are people now driving in their cars, listening to this down the West Side Highway, thinking about all the hats they're wearing, they're sitting at a red light. Oh, okay, I do that, I do that. They open up a spreadsheet. They say, okay, I got to start documenting this. But th these are real tangible things that people can do to come into their boss or to go to another uh, company and say, hey, I'm not just doing the work of one person. I'm three people. I'm right. efficient. I'm, you know, when someone hears that, regardless of whether or not they know the intricacies of what you do, when they hear that, hey, I can fill three positions with a single person. And right. Yeah, I'm going to pay them more. Then just to play it forward, finish the thought here, what's going to happen is is not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just facts. What's going to happen is there's going to come a time where that guy says, I'm more valuable than what I'm making. Mm -hmm. And I worked with people over the years and mentored people who told me that they had the same job for 10 years and never asked for a raise. <laughs> there are people out there and then every once in a while, they'll get a, like a little bone here and there, a bonus, an opportunity, but they're essentially in the same place they were because it's not in their personality or they think the guy will give it to them if they deserve it. So they don't, they're not assertive and they just make what they make and they never ask for more. I think people are afraid of friction many a times. So if there's no friction, so just to play forward, somebody's going to say, I wear three hats mm -hmm. and they're going to come to their boss and say, I wear three hats and I'm paying me 80 and I'm worth 120. Mm -hmm. One of two things is going to happen the boss is going to realize that they're right and that they don't want to lose them. So maybe they won't give them the 120, but they'll give them 100. Mm -hmm. They'll meet in the middle. Or the boss is going to be convinced that he is of a very different opinion of this person than they are. They think they're doing three things and doing it well, and he thinks that they're only okay, but if he had to replace them, he could do it for 60. Mm -hmm. And then based on the way that the boss thinks they're either going to let them go or they're going to give them a raise. Not let them go. Tell them, I don't think you're worth more. If you'd like to explore, then go explore. The soft factor here is something in like Judaism we call Akar Satov. And that is a very soft factor that is wildly disparate across different people. Akar Some Satov people being... will pay more. You are a manager of six people and you do accounts payable, accounts receivable. Your value is $180,000. But you were here when I started my company. Mm -hmm. And I'm now worth $200 million. And I'm going to pay you $350,000 a year because I like you and I want to have you around. And it doesn't mean that much to me. And I care about you and your family, etc. You're going to set the market a little bit out of whack now. 
Because two years after that, you're going to tell somebody that's a friend of yours that you make $350,000 and he's going to say, but I only make 180. Mm -hmm. You're making double. And he's going to go to his boss and he's going to say, my friend makes 350. His boss is going to be like, what? I'm not paying you 350. Because the concept of paying somebody for Akar Satov doesn't resonate with him. He says, no, you'll pay what you're worth. Akar Satov being, for those that don't know, appreciation. Appreciation of past results. Mm -hmm. There's a concept in like baseball that you pay for future results. You don't pay a guy who's 36 years old who had a career of 16 years who's fantastic. That's past appreciation. Right. We're talking about the future. There are people in our world who hang their hat on gratitude and say, you were here when I started my company? And yes, today you're not worth that much. I'm going to always pay you that much because you were here when I started my company. Mm -hmm. They set the market a little bit out of whack for other people mm -hmm. because that's a true snowflake effect. You will see 40 different people across 40 different companies with 40 different stories in that regard. One guy makes $2 million a year because he was there when this guy started his company that's now worth $150 million. And nobody else can touch it. He's the CFO, and he makes $2 million a year. There are CFOs of companies that are making $50 million a year that only make $250,000 a year, or $150,000 a year. Those people sometimes speak to people that make $2 million and say, how did that happen, and what can I do? And you know what? The answer is not much. You gotta keep doing your best, you gotta keep trying, but there's an element to all of this that's out of our control, right? Now I'm an entrepreneur myself. I don't work for somebody technically anymore. So I can empathize with almost both sides of this. I wanna be the way I wanna be, but there's no guide map. There's no playbook. There's no you know, lockstep like at the law firms. Mm -hmm. If I feel a curse of to somebody because I started a company and the company has become worth $100 million, I have a better example for you. Let's say I sold my company and you work for me, you make $200,000 a year. And my company was sold for $120 million. I'm gonna turn this over to you, right? Mm -hmm. You worked for me for 10 years. I started this company in my garage with you, and now at the end of it, we have 38 employees, and we just sold for $150 million. What would you want from me? Because the day I saw the company, you're in some trouble. Mm -hmm. I sold it to some hedge fund guy that doesn't know what you do. He wasn't here when we started the company. What are you entitled to? You're not entitled to anything. What, how would you see that scenario playing out? Because it'll play out 10 different ways with 10 different people. But what are your thoughts on that situation? I would think that someone in my position there, I would expect some sort of bonus, right? Right, right? the Hakar Satov, the appreciation effect. Right. So if I don't get that, it'll be kind of perturbed. And right. then even if you gave me like $10,000, right. I'd probably be even more ticked off right? because this is how much I was worth to you. And it's, by the way, like the numbers are public. You know what the company's right. so for. It's in the New York Post. Right. 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 So This happens all the time. Yes. Right? Yes. And whatever number the person gives, it could have been a different number. Right. So the person give you $100,000, which is like a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But again, you sold the company for $150 million. What percentage of that company's success would you attribute to yourself? Right. 5%, 8%, 8% of $150 million is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the funny part about money and negotiations and all this. There's an element that's you play your cards right, and it and you shouldn't be discouraged by that. You still should play your cards right. There's an element of godliness in all of this. It's, you know, we 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 consider it heaven sent. It's destiny. It's whatever, mm -hmm. whatever we we pray, you know, Roshani Yom Kippur, we daven and we say like, 
you know, give us what we're supposed to get. Like it's preordained. Like we believe that so much of this is out of our control. Mm-hmm. Doesn't, and it's very hard to keep the enthusiasm, to keep doing things the right way. When you feel, so many people are out there feeling like they've been scorned, mm-hmm. feeling like they didn't get what they deserved. Mm-hmm. But it's out of your control. And it's hard, but you need to keep documenting your value, coming with legitimacy, working on yourself to add skills, make yourself more marketable, network more. You need to keep doing these things and hope for the best outcome. But that story about the guy selling his company, it happens all the time. And 10 times out of 10, the number is different. One guy would give you 10 million, one guy would give you 5 million, and one guy would give you 10,000. In the same scenario. Some guys would probably give you nothing. Maybe right? nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And that really throws all this conversation out of whack. I keep mm-hmm. saying that because what you want, what I want to do is talk to people and I want to find out more information and I want to find out what am I entitled to in this scenario? But it's very hard to know when the answer from 10 different people is different. And again, the answer is it's really out of your control. So you come with legitimacy, you give your, put your best foot forward. And to a certain extent, you kind of have to like just make peace with whatever happens. You know, you have to try to be happy every day because it's not all about money. Mm-hmm. You know, if you made $250,000, but your neighbor in the same scenario made $10 million, you still made $250,000. Mm-hmm. Hopefully on the next deal, you'll make more. But, you know, that that's there's just an element to it that's out of your control. So many of you have donated to Kolel Chabad. They're helping Israel's poorest people get by with food and other ways to support them. Please help support Kol Chabad. They're a nonprofit. They've been at this for over 225 years. They started in 1788. And regardless of age, ethnicity, religious observance, this organization is helping combat hunger daily. And they're doing it in partnership with the Israeli government and with the help from people like you. They have an army of volunteers. So it helps keeps it helps keep the cost down. Um, I think they're helping now over a hundred thousand isolated seniors, and they need our help. So visit slash kosher money The link is in the show notes, and help this wonderful charity support the neediest of Israel. Donate today. You can even make a recurring donation, a dollar, five dollars a week, dollar a day, whatever it is that you can give. It really helps out. We can't thank you enough. And now back to this week's episode. So you're making $80,000. The year is 2011 or so. You're working for Lord & Taylor. Right. What happened? What you... I started to network. Started to network. Knowing that this was not a long-term future that was going to be what I envisioned for myself. How many years did you end up working for? Three that? years. And when you left there, what was your salary? I got another offer from another corporate company. And it was 95 mm-hmm. and I brought it to them and they paid me 90 because I had only gotten up on, bo- on, on year-end reviews. I'd only gotten up to like 84. Mm-hmm. So they gave me 90 and I was making 90 and they gave me some bonus structure. Mm-hmm. I was making between 90 and a hundred. So why are you still not at Lord and Taylor? <laughs> that wasn't enough. Like going up $6,000 on a bump right. just wasn't enough. So I started to network in the small business from entrepreneurial world, knowing that there was more upside in these businesses. And I set out with a very specific goal to get into one of these businesses, and I met a lot of fascinating people. Just calling around saying, hey, do you know somebody who could use a guy like me? I have these skills, I'm a lawyer, I can do negotiations, purchasing, procurement, but here's my here's my list of highlights. Like, I'll, I don't know if anybody would read it, but I would say, right. this is what I've done, you know? I can find you real estate deals, I can 
negotiate. I can, you know, I'm extremely organized and diligent and conscientious and I can show you that and I show up on time and I, I, you know, create documents and I'm very thorough, you know, so these are the types of things that I marketed about myself and I met a lot of very fascinating people and uh, through networking, I ended up taking a job with uh, somebody who was in healthcare mm -hmm. and was buying, you know, some skilled nursing facilities and ended up taking a job that was pretty undefined, but was going to be focused on expense management, vendor management, procurement, purchasing, wh whatever you want to call that. Ended up taking a job with him. And you, what X'd your salary? It was an immediate raise. Um, it was my welcome to that world where he said, what are you making? I'll pay you 25% more. It was, it was something like that. Oh, right. And I was like, it's taboo. It's a very personal question. He was right. like, no, tell me because I'll pay you. And, and I said, you know what? If that's the way that this world is going to operate, I think I got to get into it and I got to see. And um, I think my initial raise was um, 25%. Mm -hmm. so I you, made 25% more right away. So you clearly impressed him, right? There were, you, you didn't work for him on a trial basis, and right. then he offered it to you. Right. There was something about you that he was impressed with. Right. Um, it could have been the law degree. It could have been the corporate experience in a world that's not corporate. We'll never know. You mm -hmm. don't know what attracts somebody to you or draws somebody or makes somebody think, it's just, it just happens. You know, you interview and they say, I have a spot and you're that guy. And again, the, keep referencing what I'm calling the snowflake effect. Right. He didn't have a set role. He just knew he wanted somebody that he thought had a good future and could help him. And he thought that was me. So he took me on. You probably had a killer resume, right? You, you, I tried. I yeah. paid people. Four pages. That's a oh, tip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I paid somebody. I paid a professional resume writer who I spoke to for hours mm -hmm. about what my accomplishments were and how to present it nicely. And I paid them a few hundred dollars and they, they put it all penny. together in a nice package. I, I liked the result. I thought that was a huge um, awakening for me that people do that. I was like, what? You could pay somebody to write a nice resume for you? I enjoyed the experience. You know, I spoke them through my accomplishments and they... They glossed it up and they made it look nice. I, I thought six, that was great. Six-page resume, ten-page no, resume. No, no, you don't want that. Right. <laughs> You're like three years into your working career, six pages. No, it was a page and a half. Is the position that you transitioned to the current position you're in now, or no. you moved on? No, um, I worked there for eight years. Oh wow! Yeah, I only moved on in the last year. Um, Were you nervous that first year, or you you felt like it was a very good fit? nervous? Nervous. I had imposter syndrome. Right. I thought that I. I because it was so undefined. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy that plays inside the lines. I didn't know what the lines were. And I was trying to document very, very, you know, diligently what I was doing every day. You know, because I'm not one to sit around and do nothing. So I found productive things to do. I don't know if those were things that he envisioned that I would do, but I tried to make myself valuable by doing things that I found. I was like, did you know that this is not organized with this mm -hmm. and he was like no and i was like well i i fixed it i streamlined them they were one guy was doing this and one guy was doing that and they could have been doing the same thing and sharing information and i i did that so i spent a lot of the first year really just on my own coming up with productive things to do and like a lot of small businesses my role grew organically it morphed into all these things that i took on myself to do and then they became part of my responsibility set and over time, over many years, I picked up so many things that I was doing, um, and it grew to be pretty harmonious. Like they were very happy with what I did, and um, they grew tremendously and had great success. And I was definitely a part of that. As per our previous conversation, what part was I? Two percent, three percent, four percent of the success. There was a lot of success. Right. 
I assume I had some percentage of, you know, responsibility for the success, but that's how it was. It grew organically. Needless to say, you didn't have to fill out a self-evaluation I form. did. You did. I did not I, have to, but, but I did, did anyway, because so that's the, who I was. So at the end of the year, you came to him. With a book. With a book. I've been an 80-page book, and I bound it. I went to a professional binder, and I bound it with color graphics and, you know, nice, uh, clear font, and I, I really tried to craft a narrative of what I had been doing uh, every year to show that I was constantly bringing value. Going in, you had a, a conversation with him that you were going to get some percentage raise or you didn't You didn't get busy with that in the initial conversation? I did. I had like a contract that said you would get this at the beginning and then after a few months, you would get raised to this and that was the end of it. Okay. So, so then, after that, it was the Wild West. So eight years later, when you did leave, right. what percentage were you up salary-wise? Let's say you were in the 100 From where I started? From where you started, yeah. 70%, 80%. Mhm. I don't know, more than much more well more than double and what I was you, initially making. So it sounds like a, a great opportunity, a great career after 8 years, why do you leave? So then it comes a point where everybody needs to say are you comfortable with where you are if you know that the upside is capped, which mm-hmm. I I came to that determination. But I didn't come to it on my own. I came to it through many, many, many years of conversations with the principals of the of the firm, you mm-hmm. know. I would say, can I have this? Can I have equity? Can I do that? You know, um, And I would constantly fight to get myself more, and I did. Um, but over time, it just became clear that even if I were to get more, there was opportunity for me to do more elsewhere. But it became a quality of life thing, too. I, I felt, you know, being that I still have, you know, hopefully, God willing, many years ahead of me, I, I wanted to not feel beholden to somebody, not in a way that they could call me and ask me where I am that day, but in a way that I had responsibilities and duties to them exclusively when I worked for them. And I'm a person, and this again, it's just a personal preference. I want to be involved in a lot of different things. Um, So I want to start a company here, have equity in this deal, do business, you know, here. And you're not free when you work for somebody else because they're paying you for your time. Um, you can be paid by multiple people. You yourself can get a salary from A and a salary from B and a salary from C, and there'll be small salaries, and you'll be earning your salary, but there's an understanding that while you're working for him, you could also do other ventures, because you're not like, but that's not how it was there. I was an exclusive employee there, and I could not do other ventures. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a lot of ventures. I wanted to work with a lot of different people and build a lot of different things, and and again, that was, I don't know how much of that's financially driven versus quality of life driven versus passion driven, what I enjoy doing. Um, but, you know, silly examples, like if you work for them and there's a networking event, they go because they're the principals. You don't go unless you're like a chief operating officer or whatever, but whatever. However, it was structured there. That wasn't the case. They would go and I wouldn't. I want to meet more people. I want to network. I want to see what else is out there. So I left an extremely comfortable existence and I took a risk to go follow my passion, go follow things that I would want to do on my own. And again, that was a choice. It wasn't completely financially driven, but it was a choice. Did you have a drop in salary when you moved? Tremendous. After? You did? Yeah. Yeah, tremendous. Was that scary? Um, yes. Yes, it's, it's, it's more uncomfortable than scary when you're accustomed to having a certain direct deposit every week and then mm-hmm. it's all of a sudden half of that, you know? So... Was it scary? Yes, but also the salary 
becomes less relevant because when you're going into entre, you, you know this too, you're going to entrepreneurialism, you're, you're making what you, you're reaping what you sow. So the salary is one thing, but how much money is your company making, right? Mm -hmm. Now you're a partner. Now you have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Now you're hopefully getting a distribution. You're getting an equity check. So that's what you leave for. And, you know, God willing, it's, it's still in the infancy. I guess I'm only out less than a year, but God willing, when that starts to happen, it's going to be much more than I ever had right. there. So that was the goal when I left. It's still the goal. It feels attainable. Um, and I've been able to meet a ton of great people since I left and have a lot of things hopefully in the works. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I made a decision that was extremely calculated and I weighed the pros and cons and we're living it every day and it's good. It's good to be alive. It's fun. So when you were weighing the pros and cons, obviously you couldn't go from, you know, 100% down to 20% because you wouldn't have been able to pay your bills, right? Right. Us as from Jews, we talk about how you need to be in the top one to five percent of income earners in America right. just to pay your bills. Right, and and we can get into that a little bit. Right, but when you went through this risky decision, it was obviously with the thought in mind that you still needed some right. sort of monies to be coming in on a monthly basis. So I think today's day and age is a lot of things, and one of the things that it is is it's the golden age of the side hustle. I think a lot of people understand that today. Depends how much bandwidth you have to like focus on it. It depends where your talents and skills, but I think everyone can side hustle a little bit. You see it with local small businesses. I mean, you have a guy who during the day he's an accountant, but he likes baking. So at night he makes kakash cake and he mm -hmm. sells it on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. So you have so much of that. You also have, if you're fortunate, which you need a lot of fortune, to be able to have some money to invest. You can invest in real estate deals. You can invest in healthcare deals. You can invest in things if you're good enough to get in or lucky enough, and they can pay you passive income. So between making some passive income and side hustling a little bit, it can really add up. It can help you pay your bills, right? And it affords you the opportunity to take some risks because even if your salary goes away, you still have your side hustle income, you still have some passive income. Maybe you're getting some help from a grandparent or a father or your mm -hmm. mother or whatever it is. And hopefully through that, it can afford you the ability to take risks. It still doesn't make it super comfortable, but it makes it possible. And in my case, it, it does. We had a conversation with David Beshevkin, and he's not a professional investor by any means. But we asked him, just because people like to hear, and it, this is all taboo. People, The conversation we're having here now, no one has in shul and synagogue right. with, the, with their friends. Say, hey, how much did you make over here, right? right? It's almost like they don't even think to ask it. So one of the conversations we had was about if he invests, does he put money into stocks, into real estate? And he was pretty transparent about it. And then people said, hey, you have to be careful about what you ask. People will then just follow suit or think he's a professional. And I guess I would pose the same question to you is, what do your investments look like? Are they complete? Are they completely parv and, and not risky? Did you ever put money into real estate, stocks? Um, what does that look like? So my father has made a career on Wall Street. Um, he's heavily invested in the stock market. He always used to tell me, still does, don't don't invest in the stock market. I have enough in there for all of us. You know, like, <laughs> you know, you know, diversify yourself, I guess, because you know, whatever. So I never, besides my IRA, which is just like a retirement account that I have no sway over. Okay. I, I don't choose to have any sway over it. I say put it in some safe thing that gets three percent, three percent a year. So that's the only stock investment I have. Is is something like that. 
I choose to invest in things that I understand. So I've been in healthcare and I've been in real estate, which is a component of healthcare. So I have invested in real estate and healthcare uh, primarily. That's what I've invested. Basically, I'm not diversifying. I'm investing in my chosen space. Mm -hmm. I'm investing in the space that I work in. It has worked out for me. I, I've invested very, not a lot of money and very safely. Safely because there are people that, I would never invest with a random person that somebody introduced me to. I would invest with somebody that I have grown up with in this business mm -hmm. and I know them and love them and have worked with them and have a very great feeling that they would never do something to harm me. Mm -hmm. And so I've invested with people like that. I would never invest with a stranger. It's just my appetite for risk. I feel that it's less risky to, to invest with somebody that has my best interests at heart. A friend. Some people say don't do business with family. Mm -hmm. Don't do business with friends. It could, it could turn out poor. I guess I'm I'm sort of doing the opposite of that, but yeah, I've invested in real estate and healthcare with people that I know. One of the issues we've been having on YouTube is the spam comments where someone will say, "Hey, I love your love your videos, looks or it looks authentic." And then they say, "You know, investing is so important. I have a friend who I invested in. Here's their phone number." And it's like all these bots will like it, so it, it shoots to the top of the comments all day. I'm I'll tell you what it. I did not invest in. Yeah, go ahead. Crypto, NFTs, none of this. You know mm. why? Because I can't understand it. I just told you, I invest in things I understand, right? And people were making a lot of money. And I took some time and I read about it. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Like, I, I can read the concepts. I can understand what they're saying. Mm -hmm. None of it really makes any sense to me. So I won't do it. It doesn't mean it's not for other people. It doesn't mean other people can't make money. Right. I'm a logical-based person, like logic-based, and I, I like things that I can understand, and I think there's plenty of things that I do understand, and I don't understand why a picture of a bored ape, the Bored Ape Yacht Club, mm -hmm. is selling for $38 million. I, I get exclusivity. I get all these things, but again, it just something about it makes no sense to me. Right? I can even understand Bitcoin, but... All these other coins that came out, Dogecoin, mm -hmm. it seems like a big joke. So it seems funny and cute and enjoying. Elon Musk is a very smart guy, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't doubt him. There's mm -hmm. other people that are smart, but like, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> so right. I'm not going to do it. Right? Like, method of investing for Mitchell. If he doesn't understand that, he's not going and, to, and you know, teach their own. A lot of information here. Um, whenever I record an episode, I listen to it once over and then when I edit it I listen to it again so I'm going to be listening to this uh, three times lucky you <laughs> if someone is listening to this once twice three times and they want to get in touch with you is there an email address that you yeah. and uh, be prepared people do have a lot yes. of questions and ha what's the best way to reach you so I'll spell it out but it's it's eisenberger.mitchell at gmail.com so e-i-s-e-n-b-e-r-g-e-r -E -E dot m-i-t-c-h-e-l-l eisenberger.mitchell at gmail.com. Um, we'll put it in the show notes for people. Yeah, sure. Well. Okay, so one final thought, a message. You know, God willing, we'll be able to have you back on in, in upcoming seasons, but a message for people that are listening, they're hearing you talk about negotiations and salaries and the cycle of your career, um, which you're still in the infancy of it, believe it or not. What are some... What a, What is a parting thought you'd like them to chew on, think about, something that keeps you up at night, something that makes you sleep better at night, something that they can walk away with and say, you know, by the way, I heard a podcast once and Mitchell Eisenberger said this. So in Judaism, 
we believe in divine intervention. We believe in things playing out in a certain way. I said earlier in my you know, podcast here that my hallmark would be networking. Um, and all that means is, is, is keeping your eyes and your heart and your mind open to meeting new people, hearing new concepts. And I'm a guy that plays by the rules. Part of the challenge of me being an adult is when you're young and somebody breaks the rules in school, they get put in the corner. But adults behaving what I deem to be badly, there's no real retribution. There's heavenly retribution. So it's a little bit confusing for somebody that feels like they followed all the rules, they've done what they were supposed to do, and it hasn't worked out for them. Whatever they think that means. That's the part of godliness that comes into all of this. You put yourself in situations, you make the best decision at that time, you put your best foot forward, you take these practical tips for negotiations, but you need to be prepared that even if you do everything right, someone can just say no. Someone can sell the company that you helped start with them for $150 million and they can give you nothing. And there's really nothing that you can do about that. That's the part where you need to enjoy the challenge every day of waking up and trying to tackle something new and just going with the flow, which is extremely difficult. Don't get bitter. Don't get down. Keep getting on the horse. Keep trying. Keep meeting new people. Keep being open to new opportunities. Keep learning new skills. These are ways to make the journey fun. I appreciate how callous that sounds to somebody who's trying to pay bills. This sounds like a joy ride, Mm -hmm. you know? In that case, it's the same though. A person needs to just keep their head down and go to work every day. And none of us are in control about what's going to happen. Guy can buy a scratch off lotto ticket and win $500,000. It's not literally none of the things that we do are what are driving this. So continue to do your best. Continue to, you know, put yourself out there and good things will happen. I'm just going to finish. I spoke at my son's bar mitzvah mm-hmm. and I said, I long ago learned that the most, the, the most priceless things in life are those that can't be purchased with any currency, including Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? You know, what you, time, everyday time is an opportunity. I went to a, a famous yeshiva and the head of the yeshiva, he used to just repeat the word time. Time, time. Time is the greatest currency that we have because it gives you another day to wake up and create new opportunities, create new memories, create new experiences. And this applies to finance too, with money. Create new memories in finance, create new experiences in finance, meet new people, try something new, try a new venture. And that is ultimately the journey of life. I feel like, again, it's my opinion, that's how you're going to find fulfillment. People are going to write to us and say, does this guy have a book? Is that on the horizon? <laughs> I actually, it's hilarious that you should say that. I actually wrote about three or four chapters oh, there of you my go. autobiography. So when it's finished. Which, which, which is something I have a goal later in life when I have more time to sit by the ocean uh-huh. somewhere and write it. But God willing, many years from now, yeah. You promise to come back on when it's yes, finished? Yes, okay, absolutely. Great. Mitchell, thanks so much for coming down. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kosher Money. I'm your host, Ellie Langer, and I have a brother, Yaakov Langer, who has a new podcast, Inspiration for the Nation. So if you're a YouTube subscriber, look it up. At this time, the first episode has dropped. I think you'll enjoy Inspiration for the Nation. If you're not a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts, please subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. It really helps. And check out our other sponsor, 
livingsmarterjewish.org. If you need any financial advice, um, you need a financial advisor, they can try to help guide you. Email our friend Zevi. His email address is info at livingsmarterjewish.org. I've said all I've had to say. We'll see you next time on Kosher Money. The Kosher Money Podcast is hosted by Ellie Langer, run by Zevi Woolman, Ellie Langer, and myself, Yaakov Langer, and it is produced by Living L'Chaim. For more awesome podcasts and shows, check out livinglechaim.com, check us up on YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Living L'Chaim.